Hello and welcome to episode 38 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray assaulting your ears as we prepare once again to trek into the dark recesses of the golf world. As always, the PGA Tour dominates the bulk of the headlines. Three more positive COVID cases this past week. That, however, is news that you can get anywhere. Our specialty here at Good Good is the less well-covered areas of the game, and that's where we're heading this week when we're delighted to welcome back, well, I thought it was back, we'll talk about that in a moment, a player who's been a great friend of the pod, Meg McLaren. She'll join us in just a moment, fresh off a tournament victory, it must be said. We'll find out some more about that in just a tick. But first, let's start right here in the studio with my regular co-host, Adrian Loke, who tells me there's been a slight delay with the book club recording, Lucas Michelle. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, there's sorry. Some last-minute playing commitments. That'll be music to the ears of some, actually, Loke. I spoke with golf's favourite train driver earlier this week. Yeah. Rob Williamson. It's uh, him an extra week to he was rushing get up to, get, to speed. Rushing to get through his copy of the match before you recorded. So he'll be very pleased to hear there's yep. a couple of extra days. So um, what's the new schedule? Uh, so Lucas is um, playing a tournament that I think Clates helped organise down at St. Yeah, Andrews Beach. Actually, it looks really interesting. It does look um, like a fun little thing. Then, dog's uh, welcome too. Somebody asked him on Twitter and he said, yes, so you can take your dog along to watch Ogilvy and Nick Ahern and uh, yeah, Lucas. There's some, and some of the top amateurs from, uh, from Australia. So, yeah, really great little initiative there and I can't blame Lucas for getting involved in that. <laughs> it was uh, that or talk to you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, we put it back a week and actually I've had a few people contact me saying, oh, okay, good. Where, where can I get a copy of the audio book and, uh, and that sort of thing. So uh, you've got another week. Audio book? Uh, well, audible.com. Okay. If they want to sponsor us. That I was going to say, send them right an invoice well, for that. that? Yeah. Sure. yeah. Plugging, their, uh, plugging their wares. Yes, there you go. So uh, that'll be recording next week and probably out the week after. We'll see how yep. we go with that, but that'll be something to look forward to. Uh, looking forward to that episode as I'm sure are many others. Now on to today's episode, and having checked the record just before we started, I was staggered to discover, Logue, this is Meg McLaren's first appearance on the Good Good Golf Podcast. She's been on twice before, but on our other iteration, the Seek Golf Podcast. I wouldn't have needed reminding of that. Those appearances were seared into my memory. Mine too, but I just thought they were good. Good. So, uh, Meg, it's a hearty welcome for your first visit. More importantly, congratulations on a win a couple of days ago in the Rose Ladies Series. Looking forward to hearing about that and things generally during what's been a bit of a strange time for the whole world, including professional golf. How are you going over there late at night in England? I'm good, thank you guys. It's good to be, I was going to say good to be back on, but apparently not. Good to, good to be here for the first time. You can it, barely um, notice that we've changed the place, Meg. It looks almost exactly the same <laughs> as when it was the IC podcast. I was going to say, it makes me uh, It makes me feel like things are a bit more normal again, because the last time I feel like I remember playing tournament golf was in Australia. So, Well, yeah, it was, wasn't it? It was a while ago. What have you been doing? We saw you a bit on Twitter, I think. Uh, you posted a couple of uh, videos of yourself working on your swing in the backyard, <laughs> hitting into a, a net. A lot of professional golfers have come down a pick or two with yeah, the net like, hitting, haven't they? Yeah, like the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah. I am. Um, yeah, I mean, I did, I did a bit of that, but to be honest, there's only so much of that you can do, and you don't want to. It's quite hard because it's quite easy to ingrain bad habits uh-huh. just by, you know, hitting shots into net, trying to work on your technique, but without kind of proper guidance. So. I did, to be honest, I did a lot of fitness stuff, strength stuff. Um, I kind of always wanted a bit of a, a bit of a proper break to do that kind of thing. Obviously, this wasn't the ideal circumstance, but I think you just try and make the most out of a bad situation, really. Yeah, the, the problem with the net thing is that there's no ball flight, and yeah. for a pro especially, that can be fatal. You've got to be able to see what the ball's actually doing in flight, don't you? Every, every weekend golfer knows what it's like to, <laughs> yeah. to absolute stripe, stripe it for stripe the first in the two metres of its uh, flight <laughs> it's path. That's right. Before I have it. no idea what it's doing after that. Yes, indeed. Um, what sort of fitness and strength work? There's not much of you. Is there more of you now? <laughs> I think there's a little bit more of me now, yeah. I'm, I still look back at pictures from last summer and think, wow, like that wasn't wasn't the best time for me but you know you pick up things here and there and um it's been nice just to be able to get healthy again and I got a few didn't you 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 lost weight that you didn't have to lose yeah I was never big and then I um I picked up a bug somewhere at the start of last year um and it just you know stopped me being able to eat properly really I don't think it was too serious but I was uh I was struggling a little bit for a while and I had a bit of a rib injury so it all combined to make it a bit of a tough summer. Um, so it's been nice just to start eating properly again and start actually being able to work out with weights and stuff um, without feeling like I'm going to faint every five minutes or things like that. So. That's awful. What does working out look like for the modern golfer? It used to be schooners at the bar. 
you just work the right elbow <laughs> with uh, with schooners. Still is in Australia, isn't it? <laughs> Sometimes, yes. We, we have our fair share. That's why most of us are amateurs here. No, I'm only, I'm only kidding. Uh, what does workouts look like for you? Have you got some sort of program that you do? Do you work with an instructor? Yeah, so I started working with a guy, uh, Jamie Greaves, at the end of last year as I started to kind of get a bit healthier and stuff again. Um, so it was really good because we got a proper plan in place for, okay, if you can work out in a gym, this is what you can do. If you only got access to kind of dumbbells, this is what you can do. And if you don't have access to anything, then you can still do these exercises, which obviously during lockdown was really, really helpful because I've always – struggled if I don't have access to a gym to kind of know what I'm doing um so I, I got hold of some dumbbells and um use speed sticks as well so just trying to get a, a combination of strength and muscle mass and a bit of speed back in my swing as well pretty targeted stuff the modern golf workout isn't it it's not just be fit be strong it's work on these specific areas of the body and it'll be different for different players yeah, I think that's the biggest thing is it's probably different for different players because everyone's got kind of a different body composition and obviously different people swing it differently as well. But I think it's less complicated than people make it out to be as well. Like you just want to target the biggest muscle groups really and you can't get that much faster until you get reasonably strong as well. So that's kind of been the basis for me is – try and put on a bit of muscle first and then go from there. They, they say, Meg, the most important muscle for a golfer is the one inside your skull. <laughs> is, uh, I think I've been working on that. <laughs> I, it, well, exactly. Like During a forced break like you've had, what sort of mental work have you done? Because it must drive you nuts thinking about playing it, competitive golf again and wondering where your yeah, game's especially at. especially for somebody like me who thinks all the time. Um, it's actually... I think it's been really good for me to take a break, like just to get away from being caught up in tournaments all the time. Um, Cause I, you know, I put quite a bit of pressure on myself and I think like everybody, I can't help but compare myself to either to other people or to where I want to be or feel like I should be. So I think being forced to take a step back from that has actually been really good for me. Um, and, you know, getting gradually back into play in the last couple of weeks I've already noticed the difference there because I'm just focused on myself and seeing how things pan out rather than thinking I should be doing this, I should be doing that. So that's something I, you know, I'd quite like to try and keep hold of once we get back playing properly again. You, if you're ever concerned about that, Meg, compare yourself to me and Adrian and then you'll be fine. <laughs> um, that's the easy way to deal with that. Yeah. That'll be fine. You're one who's in danger, and I've said this to you before, you're almost overactive mentally, aren't you? You need to be careful. I think that's what you've just laid out there. You, you're intense uh, and you can get lost in a world of just completely absorbed with golf. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And I think it's like I think it's a strength as well, you know, like it's mm -hmm. worked in my favour in the past and I pick up little bits and pieces that I don't think I would pick up if I wasn't wired like that. But, you know, if things start going wrong or you – you have a few bad weeks like we talked about in Bonville, you can just get so much in your own way that even, you know, during lockdown, I, I felt like I should be reading lots or listening to all these videos that were out there with all the kind of advice from other golfers and all the rest of it. But I just kind of felt like, you know what, this is the one chance you're probably going to get to just, you know, take a step back and just give yourself a chance to breathe almost. So I tried not to give myself a hard time for doing that. There's this thing called YouTube, Meg, that has a lot of <laughs> excellent golf advice on it. So. And the more people you take no, that thank you, from, the better. Yeah, that's yeah, right. It's got this little recommendations thing down the right and you can just, you can spend hours in there. Um, so with with that forced break as well, you're not playing competitive golf. Did, did you play much uh, sort of social golf and then, what what was it like actually having a scorecard in your hand when it you know, was for real? Did is that something you struggled yeah, to cope with? I mean, um, well, courses closed here completely for I'm not sure maybe two months, two and a half months. So I I couldn't do anything at all, and then they opened up again probably about four or five weeks ago now. So it was only we only really had maybe two or three weeks of playing before we then started tournaments as well because once golf courses opened um kind of all the mini tours realized that they could put on events again 
so I played I played quite a lot when the courses opened again socially um and to start with it was really fun because you didn't care what was happening it was just nice to be out there but I didn't last very long it wasn't long before it was like okay you know <laughs> back into I want to get a proper score what's now. going on how do I fix it what do I need to do um but even even that is different to how it was say at the start of the year it's it's been really cool for me because it's a chance to almost trial things a little bit because you're playing competitively and you care and you want to do well, but not quite to the extent of a normal tour event. So there's a tiny bit more freedom to to let go, I guess, of the outcome. There's a perspective adjustment too, isn't there, that comes with having it taken away for a couple of months? Yeah. You would never have expected that to happen in mm. your whole life. Mm. And there it was, bang, it happened. And it happened so easily and so quickly. If your perspective didn't change, you're probably not thinking about it the right way, I suspect. Yeah, exactly. I think that probably goes for, you know, everybody in any industry. But I've, you know, I've said for a long time that despite how kind of down on myself I might get or how pessimistic I might come across sometimes whenever I write, you know, I love golf and I absolutely love getting to do it for a living. So to have it taken away is just another reminder of that, I suppose, of how lucky we are. You're one of those who needs it, Meg. You've got the sickness bad. You're, uh, I spoke <laughs> it's to Pete. my drug, yeah. It is. I spoke to Pete. You, you mentioned we chatted at Bondville. That was for the thing about golf podcasts, which is my favourite thing to do, and I really enjoyed doing that episode with you. I spoke to Peter Fowler yesterday for an upcoming episode of The Thing About Golf. He's got the sickness too. Yeah. He was in Auckland yesterday. He's 50 – I'm going to say he's 58 years old. Maybe even 60. In fact, he isn't. I think he is 60. He's in Auckland yesterday practicing in the rain. Yep. yep. And he went out to practice because it was raining. And one of the pros, <laughs> of course, said to him, what are you doing? He said, mate, you know, you've got to practice. You've got to be ready. Well, yeah, he plays on the Stay Shore Tour, which has been cancelled for the year, but there's a couple of events coming up in New Zealand he's hoping to get to Australia. He plays all the, uh, the Legends <laughs> Pro-Ams around Sydney as well. He would and play it, the Wednesday comp at Mangrove Mountain if you invited <laughs> him. That's how bad well, he's I've, got it. I've seen him in some of that Legend circuit. He gets out there the day before and he's practicing yeah. and chipping around all yeah. of the greens and yeah. stuff. He, yeah, he just loves it. Can chip too. So uh, I put you in the same category, Meg. At the age of 60, you'll be out practicing in the rain, in the, in the cold, in Auckland. No doubt about it, no yeah, absolutely, absolutely certain. So, look, all of that's obviously paid off in some way. We've been wasting too much time. Tell us about this win. First, tell us about the Rose Ladies series for those who might not have heard. It's created a fair bit of uh, chatter, which is good. Uh, tell us about that, and then tell us about your win the other day. Did, did you read something about you played a wrong ball? Do you have to do something crazy to find? I mean, you, went, you I had an air swing. Yeah, you had an air swing when you won the New South Wales Open. You <laughs> played a wrong ball in this one. What's going on there? Tell us about it. Yeah, well, you know me, I don't like to do things straightforward. Um, but no, so whenever, when lockdown first started or when we knew tournaments were getting cancelled, one of the girls, Liz Young, kind of sent a message to all of us and said, look, we're probably going to get to play in England before we get to play on tour again. So if that happens, what does everybody think about almost doing like a roll-up? You know, we we all pay X amount of money, turn up at one course for a day and just play for our own money effectively. Um, so we all thought that was a great idea, but she was the only one who really kind of took it seriously and, and tried to get it going when the courses did open again. Um, and her golf course were really keen to do something. So sh- she organised all of this at her club, Brockenhurst. Um, and, you know, 30 or 40 of us entered and we we're going to put up our own money and play. And she managed to get a bit of media coverage behind it. And because of that, Justin Rose, well, so the story goes, Justin Rose saw it in the paper and he and his wife decided that they wanted to put a bit of money behind it and see if they could turn it into a slightly bigger thing than just one event. And the Rose Lady series was born, basically. Um, So it's now eight events, I think it is, with like a grand final and an order of merit and a few other companies have got behind it as well. So we're actually playing for, for a reasonable amount of money as well. Mm. And, and you've proceeded to stitch up Liz Young uh, for second place in uh, both the first two events <laughs> so far. Leading the order of merit, though, so I think she knows what she's doing. Yeah, indeed. Now, of course, all the accolades, and rightly so in many ways, have gone to Justin Rose and his wife, Kate. Who And Kate, I think, has been at each of the events, which has been uh, been good of her. But Liz Young's really the hero of this story, isn't she, Meg? Tell us about Liz, because I, to my great embarrassment, know almost nothing about her. 
Um, yeah, she's she's a great girl. She is married with a young daughter. Um, so the last few years for her on tour, she's you know obviously been balancing that, which I can't imagine is particularly easy. Um, and I think that's probably part of where her you know wanting to do something for everybody kind of mindset has come from because she knows that we can't really support ourselves on on very little events and um you know girls don't have like a second income necessarily um and at her home club is a guy called Jason McNiven who is a club fitter and also the head pro at her club but he fits quite a lot of the girls including me in the UK for their clubs um so he's always been quite a big supporter of us so I think the two the two of them combined kind of got this off the ground mm. well good on her that's proper proactive uh helping yourself dragging yourself up by the bootstraps and all that sort of stuff isn't it it's it's, it's great to see yeah, yeah i mean i think you know we've always it's stuff like this we've always talked about and then you know with with everything going on in the world there was suddenly an opportunity to to actually make something mm. happen and i think that's why people kind of paid a bit more attention to it as well because obviously there wasn't wasn't a lot of sport going on so there's a bit more conversation and a bit more exposure so like i said before just trying to turn something that's a horrible situation into into an opportunity almost never never waste a good crisis as winston churchill said indeed Uh, well i think one of the most remarkable things for me is the involvement of well it's justin rose a prominent male athlete, they really have to do so little to mean so much to a lot of people. And uh, I, I was surprised most of all by the amount of money he uh, contributed makes a huge difference. But we're not talking about an enormous amount of money, um, which I think to other sponsors, they, they could look at that and think, oh, wow, you know, he got sort of naming rights for that. Mm. And uh, it was well, know, women's we're talking about over £35,000, yeah. is that right? Or thirty five thousand dollars, or something of that order of magnitude. It just didn't seem to me like uh, it. It was, you know, it's an enormous contribution um, from one a, individual. But in perspective, it's probably a thirtieth place check on the the PGA Tour. Yeah, but they're, they're you know one prominent male athlete um, making that sort of contribution makes a huge difference to literally dozens of his female colleagues who are doing exactly the same job. It's uh, been great PR for him, hasn't it, Meg? But it also, I think, as Adrian says, it highlights what great value women's professional golf is for potential sponsors. I'm not sure how many out there realise just what a good value proposition women's golf is. If I was in the market to sponsor some golf, in terms of return on investment, I think you'd do much better investing $10,000 in women's golf than you do investing 100000 in men's golf, do you reckon that's fair, Meg? It's not, it's not as simple as that, obviously, but that's my general sense. Of yeah, it. I mean, it's um, like I've heard quite a few people joke saying this is probably the best PR exercise Justin Rose has ever spent money on. You know, like it's he's got quite a lot of good publicity out of it as well, and obviously that's not why he's done it, but it's sort of a win-win for mm. for somebody like him, and I think, like you're saying, for a lot of other companies in the grand scheme of what they spend on other things it's it's not too big of a sum obviously times are changing and people are probably going to be cutting their budgets and things but that you know that could actually work in our favor because you don't have to invest Mm -hmm. as much to get what i think will be quite a good return um and you only have to look at you know all of these events that we're turning up to now every week all the girls are like we're so happy uh-huh. that this has happened like i still struggle to get my head around it and it's not you know like you said it's not a huge sum of money for somebody like justin rose but the number of girls that it's having an impact on is huge mm-hmm. so Importantly, it's, it's cool to see somebody actually actually put something behind their words as well it's actions something. it's actions as well as just being an ally and distracted beautifully from the whole honma situation which is following away <laughs> in the background <laughs> not that i'm suggesting that that's uh, that's why i just did it what was the outlook we'll come back to the winner but what was the outlook prior to this happening it was pretty bleak wasn't it for the ladies european tour and those of you based in europe yeah i mean uh kind of events are getting cancelled one by one um but it, from quite early on, it looked like it was going to be at least August before the tour got up and running again. And there's quite a few 
mini tour events in the UK um, who do sort of like one day things where you, you know, you're sort of just playing for your entry fee. But we all started to figure out, okay, are these open to women as well? And a few of them are. So like I've played in a couple already that are kind of men and women. But, you know, it's not the same as as getting to play with the people that you know and having that kind of media backing as well. Um, Four and rounds, just, the whole circus, know, Meg. There's a there's a vibe about a proper golf tournament, isn't there, a 72 hole stroke play tournament? Yeah, exactly. Um, and like we were talking about before, income as well. You know, it's you've got to be able to sustain yourself, which even one-day events, you know, it doesn't matter how well you do, you're probably not going to – not going to be able to make much happen um so everyone i think everyone was starting to get a little bit concerned about when they might get to play again and when they might get to kind of earn some money again really well i was, I was surprised to see uh, a number of the, the women from the the event at moore park actually played in the morning in a pro-am over at warpliston which is uh, probably a 40 hour one hour drive even perhaps uh Quite remarkable, really, and you can't imagine that happening on a men's tour, can you? But uh, no, quite. There was there was a few of the girls did that, and it was it was like thirty plus degrees, which for us is that's like almost unthinkable weather. Yeah. So Celsius. Whenever we played, yeah, whenever we played a practice round the day before, I was thinking, God, the girls, the girls who are doing both of these tomorrow are not going to be in for for a particularly pleasant day, but you know. If you want to play, then you want to play. We'll kind of take take what we can get, really. Mm, indeed. So let's come back to it. So you won. Tell us about the day and your play and has it been your fitness and your work on your mental game during lockdown that led to you? What, uh, and, and was it different? How did you play? Did you, are you still the same player you were before this enforced break? Well, the whole the whole trying to go stress-free didn't really work out too well. <laughs> I had more things happen in a one-day event than in a 72-hole tournament. But, um, no, yeah, I I don't know, to be honest, because I played, I played another one-day event on Monday, and I, it went quite a similar way. Like, I got off to a really fast start and then had a mini collapse, um, which is quite unusual for me because I'm quite a steady player. I don't you know, there's nothing too extreme either way most of the time. But I think it's just, you know, I think I'm playing with a little bit more freedom, maybe in part because they're one-day events, so you're not really worried about, you know, I've got to put myself in position or anything like that. You're just trying to mm. play as good golf as you can, basically. It's a sprint, um, not a marathon, isn't it? You know, there's nothing to build. Yeah, so get exactly, out there. Yeah. Which, which in the past I wouldn't have thought suited the way I play. But like I said, I think I'm just playing with a bit more freedom now and I'm not scared to kind of try things as I go. Whereas in kind of tour events in the past, I think I I put too much pressure on myself and then, you know, you get a bit tight and you're trying not to make mistakes rather than going out there with, you know, with the mindset of just trying to enjoy it and trying to make birdies really. Um, but I, in the event that I played on Monday, I was, I think I was five under or something and I made a triple on 15 oh. and ended up losing by two or three. Ouch. So, yeah, so that was like one bad drive that cost me. So I got off to a really fast start in the Rose event and I think I was, I was six under through 10 and it's one of those where you just like, you know, everything's going well. You can't really see any mistakes coming, but I said to myself, you know, you you felt like this on Monday and something bad happened. So you just make sure you positive keep positive thoughts you take into the back nine. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I, know. I was I was just trying to, you know, remind myself that yeah. things in golf don't always go smoothly. Um so I was I was trying to use it as positive. Okay. So of course, you know, I, I try and set myself and keep going. Um and I hit my drive down eleven, which is a blind tee shot and it all sort of funnels into a really narrow fairway. So myself and another girl both hit similar drives. So we get over the crest of the hill and there's one ball that we can see just in the edge of the right rough. And there's a ball spotter over the hill. And he says, oh, don't worry, the, the other ball is just in the edge of the left rough, which is like 10 yards away. So we said to him, oh, was that the, the first ball or the last ball? And he said it was the last ball. So because I'd teed off first, I went to the ball on the right-hand side. The other girl goes to the ball on the left-hand side. 
neither of us thinking anything of it. I hit my shot and start walking up to the green to try and see where it's finished. And I turn around and the other girl's sort of looking down at her ball. And I'm like, what, what's going on here? What's she doing? And my sister it. was caddying. <laughs> yeah, my sister was caddying for me and she realized before I did. So the girl's like, this isn't my ball. So straight away I was like, well, your ball can only be in one place and that's where <laughs> I've just hit it. <laughs> <laughs> But so, by the way, it's six iron, not five. <laughs> um. So yeah, I mean, I don't. I'm not sure I've ever done that in my entire like amateur career either. And it just like I almost had to laugh because you just think things are going so well. I'm, you know, I'm playing really nicely. I'm not stressed. I don't feel like I can hit any bad shots. And instead, I do something that I don't think I've ever done in my life. Mm. In a way, it's, it's probably goal, it? good that it comes at that point in the round uh, where you can sort of recover from it, and, and obviously, yeah, you did, and you know, I um, bounce back a bit. I bogeyed, I bogeyed the next, but it was sort of just one of those bogeys. And then there was a scoreboard, so that was the first scoreboard that I'd seen, and I was still like two or three ahead. So I was like, oh, you know, all of this has just happened, but I'm obviously still in a good position. So I was quite lucky that it happened sort of after I'd got into such a good position. So I still had time to kind of keep hold of that, I guess. That's a great mental test that you've passed there, Mick. That could go a whole bunch of ways, couldn't it? You could but you could collapse from there. You could make four bogeys on the way to the house and be kicking yourself still the following day. Do you reckon Yeah, I suppose Do you reckon Sorry, a year, that's okay. Do you reckon a year ago you'd have had the same response? And when you reflect on that, that might be one of the most important moments not in your career, but in a way, um, do you think? Yeah, I think it's it's a strange one. It makes me think of um, in the Australian Open last year, whenever I started my third round with a nine, and then I had like seven birdies after that in that round. And that sort of was probably one of the biggest tests I've ever come through mm. in terms of what happened to me mentally and how I responded from it and what it kind of taught me about myself and stuff. But I think a lot of it is, is just to do with timing because I thought whenever I kind of reflected on that round in Australia, I kind of thought, I wonder how I would have handled that if that had been the first hole of the second round rather than the third round, mm. because obviously then you're thinking about the cut, whereas mm. the third round it's like, okay, you're probably not going to win the tournament now but you've still got two days worth of golf to play, you know, and in, in the event on Thursday, I was still leading. So it's quite a, I think it shows how much circumstance can be kind of dictated by, by what's going on at that particular moment in time, but you've still got to try and use it as if I can respond to it, then, then I should be able to respond to it in the same way, no matter what the circumstances. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Let's not speak. We spoke far too much about that nine when we spoke at Bonville, so let's not bring that up again. <laughs> there was uh, too, much, uh, too much focus on that. A couple of other things that you've been up to, Meg, because we know that aside from the golf, we've praised your riding before and you know, we all know that that's something you enjoy doing and that you're good at, but you had a bit of a different riding assignment these past few weeks. You wrote a script for a little promotional video that Suzanne Pedersen did the voiceover for, so good to see the players doing it. Tell, tell us a bit about that and what that's about, because the LET, for those who don't know, now has an agreement in place with the LPGA, which has been a fantastically positive step forward, I think, for both of those tours, for both the LPGA and the LET, and this was all a part of that. Tell us about that, how it came about, and what was that experience like, writing for TV, essentially? Yeah, it was uh, very, very different, but really, really cool. Like, honestly, one of the coolest things I've been a part of seeing it all come together at the end um but like you said the the partnership itself has been like incredible it, honestly for the first time since i've been on tour there's been so much positivity around what the future actually looks like and a little bit like the rose events a little bit of disbelief with wow this you know something good is actually happening to us and we're really grateful for it um so yeah, during during lockdown, I think the LET staff had kind of emailed us all personally to kind of say, hope you're doing okay. You know, if you need anything, feel free to let us know and things like that. So I just kind of wrote back and said, 
kind of likewise, you know, if, if there's anything we can do to make your lives a bit easier, just, you know, just let us know. You know, and not, I wasn't really thinking anything would come from that. <laughs> that's true. Not selfish enough. Yeah, that's, Fail. That's, that's. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I didn't, I didn't really expect anything to happen after that. Um, and then about a week later, um, I had a phone call from one of the members of staff and they said, look, we're, we're doing a video to kind of celebrate this this new partnership and we want it to be about kind of what goes into being a player on the LET and kind of the the grind that can go into it, but the success and things like that. And we want you to write it. And I was like, well, you know, I've never written anything like that before and I've never really written for other people either. I kind of just write what's in my mind and go from there. Um, but yeah, so that that over the course of a few weeks that kind of panned out and I kind of you know tried a few different things that maybe didn't work to start with and then it kind of hit me that it was about the LET and what the LET means to me and I, I'd written something about that maybe last year mm-hmm. or the year before so I, I had a read back through that and I kind of found exactly what it was that I was looking for and just kind of translated it into the into the right format so it was i thought they did an amazing job with the whole video to be honest mm. and and the hashtag raise our game i think is something that is really resonates well i think it, it works really well with the video and the messaging that you wrote uh wrote with it as well did you have that to go off when you did the writing or had that already been decided or did yeah you, did the you um the raise our game tagline had already been decided um so that was that was quite helpful, and they sort of gave me a few a few pointers. You know, this is kind of the the vision that we've got and where we're going from. And whenever they said the idea that the sort of concept for the video with kind of videos of of us when we were little, and you know, I had all these images in my head of of being on the driving range in the cold and the rain and things like that. Um, and there's footage it, of you I don't know, used it in the. It all came the, together yeah, really well. There's footage of you as an eight-year-old in the video, I think. Is that right? Your, your dad <laughs> Yeah, contributed. and there's, there's footage of me in my Newcastle kit as well, full-on football strip, <laughs> head to toe. <laughs> dear, oh, dear. What did you say? That I saw the standalone video. I think the LET put it out, the, and your dad's obviously filming, and then you hit the shot, and you stand up, and you're looking and say, well, that was a good shot or something similar to that. It was just fantastically <laughs> I know. precocious eight-year-old uh, stuff. I love, the bit, I love the bit where you're looking at the camera saying, you ready? <laughs> it's like yes yes just i wrote on the they put it on instagram and i wrote on it i was like i've been trying to regain that positivity ever since i I had it at some point i don't know where it went it does point though it does not in some ways to the importance of the show off within we've talked about this before i know adrian and i have talked about you and i might have talked about it too meg You, you need to have that desire to show off a bit when you've got a special skill don't you to be successful in golf there's a little element of that isn't there look what i can do yeah, definitely. Every I think every professional golfer has it. It doesn't matter if you, you know, I'm I'm an introvert, and plenty of other golfers are, but you've still got that, you know. And in that video, I'm eight, so I'm not the best golfer in the world, but I still think I am at that point. <laughs> Hello, fine people of the Good Good Podcast world. I hope you're enjoying our chat with Meg McLaren, one of my favourite people in the golf world, even though, ironically, as a member of the working media, I obviously don't have favourites. What I do have is a favourite place to get golf apparel, and it'll come as no surprise to regular listeners that that place is thegolfsociety.com.au. From the comfort of your own home, you can outfit yourself in the very latest in fashion from some of the biggest names in the game, including Hugo Boss and Ralph Lauren, shoes from Nike, G for and more and even gloves belts and socks it's your one-stop golf fashion shop now i've already used my 25 dollars off first purchase for being a talking golf listener but if you haven't then now is the perfect time just head to the golfsociety.com.au forward slash talking golf that's the important part don't forget the forward slash talking golf and of course just one g in talking golf and have a poke around if you can't find something to wear for this upcoming season well i'm going to suggest that you're just not trying that's the golfsociety.com.au forward slash talking golf now back to Meg McLaren. It's interesting this time of lockdown, it's been different things to different people, of course. For the staff at the LET, as for the staffs at all the other professional tours, it's really tested the creativity, hasn't it? Because 
what you can't afford to do is disappear from the public consciousness just because there's no tournament golf happening. So that thing they've done with you, and we know the European Tour has nailed this social media thing in the last year or two really, really, really well. It's really testing the creativity of the tours, isn't it? And that whole other space of tournament golf's one thing and the players will play and shots will be hit and scores will be posted and somebody will win – that's one thing, but there's a whole other side to running that tour in this day and age, isn't there, of engaging with people and getting them to want to watch all of that. And you're a part of that as well as a player. Yeah, definitely. And I think in a way, I suppose we were lucky that we just announced the, the partnership with the LPJ. So I suppose they had something to kind of work on and create kind of behind the scenes while all of this was happening. But like you said, the the European tour, I think, do that the best out of any tour out there with with how they engage with their fans and how they they let their personalities kind of shine through. They don't try and be something else to, to sell themselves or, you know, to try and get fans and followers. They can just, you know, I think because the, the media over the years have done such a good job of kind of giving them the exposure and the platform, they, they're not trying to sell themselves anymore. They just are who they are. I think that's something we could probably learn a lot from on the on the female tours. Yeah, it's something they, they're really invested in their players and raising the profile of their players. I think that's the secret to it. Whereas, and, and you see this in anything, like Rod would know from news organisations, nobody wants to follow the, the news company's uh, Twitter handle. They'll follow all of the journos' mm-hmm. Twitter handles who write for them. And uh, people want to follow personalities. They don't want to follow the organisation. And I think it's the thing that the PGA Tour gets wrong all the they time. They get it so wrong. They're, they're, they're like, oh, well, everybody wants to get behind our brand, the PGA Tour. But no, nah, they, they want to get behind That's the players. They want to show sponsors. It's interesting. Is there a cultural thing there, do you think? Meg, you've spent time in America. You sort of went to college there. We know that. It seems to me that that's exactly what the European Tour has done. Not only have they invested in the players, they've invited the players to invest in the European Tour, and the players have jumped at the opportunity. And you think of some of the names who've appeared in some of those videos, the Fleetwoods, the Henrik Stensons. Um, you go through- Pe- Pepper Allen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Guys who are household names on both sides of the pond. It's hard to imagine Dustin Johnson. Well, they've tried with DJ, and it was, Baba, it was terrible. But buying they, into that? They wrap them in their little, or they barely take them out of their little player bubble mm. in order to contribute a bit of time to this stuff. Whereas you can tell the European tour stuff takes a lot of time out of the players. And they enjoy it. It takes that much time to actually do something good. Yeah. What do you reckon about all that, Meg? Is that cultural? What's the. Because I think the LHA and the it LPJ might, are probably yeah. a bit similar, is my guess. Yeah, it, it might be. It's, it's a hard one to work out because you're right. You can't imagine Dustin Johnson and Brooks Kepka and Justin Thomas, even, you know, those younger guys who have got. You know, they've got character, they've got personality, but they don't necessarily show it through, or the PGA Tour don't show it through what they post. Um, And I don't know, maybe it's, you know, a lot of those American guys have been through the college system and maybe it's just the structure that's in place from such a young age that kind of shapes you a certain way in terms of becoming a professional and creating your professional persona I guess whereas you know you have to cut your teeth a bit more in Europe and kind of I mean I went to college so I don't know if I'm talking a load of rubbish but I don't know there's sort of there's more of an element of being able to let your personality come through even while you're being a professional whereas I I don't know if that's frowned upon a little bit in America or if it's a because it's such a kind of win-at-all-costs attitude, you show some personality and it it's framed as a weakness almost, yeah, which yeah. is something that I've never really bought into. But, you know, you look at the way Tiger was, and I think that's created a whole culture of you have to be a certain way to be able to succeed, even if it's not true. All the, all the personality's been media trained out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, certainly in front of the camera. It, it's too broad a brushstroke to make, but I think I, I think of America generally as a more homogenous place than Europe. And uh, as always, Clates has a story that I think encapsulates it beautifully about Seve. Seve could never take to life in America because – 
it didn't matter what town you're in, you could go to the same restaurant. Let's call it McDonald's, for example, or Denny's or whatever it might have been. It wouldn't matter what part of America you're in. There was one of those there, and at 6.30, the players would be in the habit. That's when they would go and eat, and they'd have the same thing, and then they'd go to the motel, which looked exactly the same as the motel from the other place. Seve wasn't ready till eat till 10.30 at night. He'd go back to the hotel room and sleep until 8, and then he'd get up and want to go out and stay out till 1.30 or 2. And it just doesn't work in America. Europe's different like that. And even though you might not be that way in England, on the tour, you're exposed to a lot more of that perhaps in Europe. And it creates a different attitude and a way of looking at the world, maybe. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. And that's why I love Australia as well, because I feel a more European vibe than I do in America. You know, I like going to all the, the little coffee shops and walks along the beach and things like that. You know, and you speak to a lot of, well, American players as well, I suppose, but a lot of European players. And they, their best memories, golf-wise, are from their amateur days when you play tournaments all over the place. And you might have the same group of people, but you're going out to different places all the time and you're socialising with each other and you're getting to know different cultures. And even somebody like Kepka, you know, he'll talk about how much he enjoyed playing on the Challenge Tour and the European Tour. I think there's... I don't know if there's just a bit more freedom to to do your own thing maybe, but it's it's part of the reason why I love playing in Europe. Mm. Hasn't he come out of his shell, Brooks Kepka? Was. <laughs> he, he has, yeah. Well, and, in a good way. Yeah, that's right. Well, I think it's another thing um, Mike Clayton said was, you know, he always felt at home in Europe, even in countries where it's non-English speaking countries. He, he, could, he felt at home in a way that he never felt uh, in comfortable America. in America. Greg Turner was the same. Mike Camp- Michael Campbell was yeah. the same. Yeah. He tried to sort of straddle both tours. It was probably, in fairness, damaged his career more than more than helped it. We know he won the US Open, Michael Campbell, but what yeah. a player he was and what, what might he have been. Yeah. Um, so Maybe it's just the lack of good coffee in America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it was nice to know all of our American as, as we uh, sip on a McDonald's <laughs> yeah, well, right. takeaway coffee. Logan's turned up with McDonald's yeah. coffee this morning, Meg, Sorry. so he's Apologies. not Apologies. Apologies to everybody. Um <laughs> The uh, so I'm, I'm curious though with the let uh, right at the moment you know there's a lot of talk about the the sort of the bubble that they've created for the PGA tour. Mm-hmm. What sort of measures have you seen? Have you experienced Meg for this the Rose Series events and uh, and how effective have they been? Do you think? Um, well, to be honest, because they're one day events, it's I would imagine far far easier to to kind of do all the safety protocols than it is for a 72 hole tournament. Um, but we've had at the first event we played, they took our temperatures when we came in, which I was quite impressed with. Um, you know, and if I, as far as I know, nobody did have a high temperature, but they would just turn you around, send you back home if you did. Um, and they've had volunteers with each group. So you have one, one person carrying a rake to rake all the bunkers and you have another person who takes the flag out on every green. So just to try and minimize, you know, any spread of of contact and things like that. So, you know, they're following following all the rules as best they can. Um, obviously, you've seen, you know, such a spotlight on the PGA Tour and what they're doing that they kind of have to get it right before the rest of us can try and get it right, I suppose. Yeah, the European Tour are going to play that bubble sort of in the UK and England, aren't they? That'll be interesting. I, I, I I feel more comfortable with what the European tour is talking about doing than with what we've seen from the PGA tour. That aside, have you had to have the test, Meg? Because it is horrendous. <laughs> you would <laughs> rather get a job much, and give up professional it. golf than be tested regularly. Don't, don't get devices. that message out there. It's Rob. awful. People, it's it's fine. People, just do, do <laughs> How the do you testing. know? You haven't done it. I've seen it being, oh, you've being seen done it. Yeah, to my, my daughter. I've seen people play golf. How <laughs> yeah. hard could it be? Yeah. It's uh, have there been sort of. Not forced. Has there been compulsory testing or not at this stage? No, not no. here at this stage. I think in the UK it's it's still only pretty much for NHS workers and kind of key workers like that. But I think when the the LET does get up and running, they've obviously been been looking at how they can do it. But you know, not everybody has the money that the PGA Tour has. No, that's but. right. It's not cheap, is it? That's the uh, even the European Tour are not going. Yeah. Fantastically financially, it's going to uh, be a be here to them. Just before we move on to a couple other things, do we know? Uh, I've and it may be just because I haven't uh, 
done enough reading. Do we know yet what the LET plan is? Have they established a date to restart? The LPGA has. At the moment, it's August, which is the co-sanctioned Scottish Open and then the British Open. Um, so they're still still slated to go ahead at the moment. So fingers crossed. I think we'll actually know more next week mm-hmm. um, or this week. So International travel restarts kind of been- in the UK, does it, next week, I think, July the 6th they're talking about? Is that right? Yeah, sort of hotels and things like that mm. are allowed to open from then. So, you know, I think they've, they've been talking about having kind of strict hotels for, for the players for those two events because they're both in Scotland. Um, so it'll be like a mini bubble for those two events. And then after that, it's kind of just wait and see really because each country is so different at the moment mm. that it's hard to really predict travel-wise what's going to happen and if if every player will be able to get to the same place. It's the advantage America has, doesn't it? They're contained within the one country, so internal travel is not such an issue, and it's the great problem for the European Tour and the LET. You do so much cross-border travel in such disparate countries <laughs> in so many different places that, as you say, the rules are different for each one and just, just the, the cost. Uh, I'm wondering what do we know? Do we have any idea, Adrian, how many people per player are required to put on a tournament? Has that been calculated? So uh, I know there's a couple of guys who do a, a motorbike racing podcast in here, and they'd calculated that for every rider on the track, it required 16 people to be on site in various capacities, mechanics and trainers, whatever they might be. There'd be some sort of figure for golf too, wouldn't there, Meg? So it's not just the field, it's not just the players, and it's not just the players and their caddies. It's all of those other associated people. It's a, it is literally a travelling circus. There's probably, if you include the players and caddies, it's upwards of 400 people per event before you start talking yeah, about I mean, media, fans. There's 400 people on site. Yeah, it's a pretty hard one to get your head around. And I suppose that's where we're sort of like the female players, or certainly for me anyway. You know, I started off on the Access Tour, which is our feeder tour. And you kind of, you're used to being by yourself. You know, you don't have your coaches or a physio or a psychologist or or a caddy even, you know, all those events. So you're actually quite used to doing things by yourself. And honestly, for me, you know, I, I wouldn't mind everything being behind closed doors obviously it's you know it's a shame for all the fans and stuff but it's I think it would work quite well for my own you know little internal battles that I have but um I think golf's problem on a broader scale is obviously it's a lot of these events are hospitality based and you know they couldn't be put on without all the sponsors and the pro-ams and all of those things which is why I think we've already lost so many events for the rest of the year because that's where the money comes from. And if you can't, if you can't welcome those people in, then, you know, golf by itself might be okay, but the actual, everything that goes into the event, that that's a different story. And that's leaving aside that those people taking up those sponsorships, their businesses might now be in a position where <laughs> sponsoring a golf tournament is no longer an option, even if they wanted to, and all of those other things were still on offer, so it's kind of like a double and a triple hit uh, in some ways, isn't it? I wonder, Meg, this idea is just kind of whether we might see some uh, an idea of sort of bubble tours, so the European Tour might go to – well, the, the European Tour are doing the UK and other England. They're doing, I think, six events there. We could have an Austra- – the LET could certainly have – almost does have an Australian bubble tour down here, doesn't it? early in the year, which I'm hopeful might actually grow. And we, with the LPGA partnership, who knows, we might see some more players from other parts of the world as well. That might be how golf's future looks. This pandemic is sort of, it's not going to go away, is it? And certainly the lessons we've learned from it, we know this is one virus, but scientists will tell you, there's another one around the corner once we've dealt with this one at some point. Maybe that's what golf's future looks more like. Yeah, it could be. I mean, I wouldn't be against that at all because obviously it would make a lot of things easier in a way. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, like we said before, I think every industry is being forced to kind of reevaluate and look at the way it operates. And it is, in a way, as horrific as as everything is, you know, it's an opportunity to mm-hmm. try and do things better if you can. When, you know, when do you ever get a chance to just reset and start again? Right. You know, we've got a got to try and change for the better 
if we have the chance to, I think. Yeah, it's a hell of, hell of a wake-up call for the whole game, not just professional golf. Adrian? Yeah, well, he's, he, I mean, he's an idea for everybody. Somebody out there. Uh, <laughs> you maybe, can have this one for yeah, free, to have, have this Take one it free. and run with it. Um, with, with a lot more sort of local tournament stuff and, and demonstrating what's being done with the Rose series, I, I can't say why we couldn't perhaps organise like a GoFundMe campaign or something. Like you could mm. feasibly fund a few tournaments from raising fifty thousand dollars from a GoFundMe campaign. And it, you know, it certainly fits with the, the raise our game sort of thing, doesn't it? It's um there you I'm go. not sure that's just, been I don't think you've kicked a goal there, but somebody out there might that might be the journey. I'd just of come up with the ideas, Rod, right, yeah. and then you know, let somebody others. can just go and make it happen. Uh, execution's not mine. Yeah, let others run with it. Just before we come to a couple of more things about you, Megan, I'm conscious of the time, I'll let you go shortly because it's really is getting late over there. Lots of anecdotal evidence in Australia that golf Broadly, not professional golf. Golf has been a bit of a winner in the pandemic. It's one of the few sports people can play. Tea time sheets are full at a lot of places here in Australia. It's harder to get a game than it has been since the 1980s uh, at a lot of public access facilities. Have we seen something similar, do you know, in the UK uh, and taking off your professional hat and just being a golfer? How do we make the most of that as a game and an industry and retain those people who've come to the game? Perhaps not necessarily by a straight-out choice, but who've stayed with it for whatever reason. Yeah, I mean, I know you said take my professional hat off, <laughs> but I know a lot of um, a lot of professional golfers actually struggled to get on their courses in the UK when they opened again because there was that much demand for play on all the golf courses, which is quite cool in a way. You know, it's obviously a lot of people weren't working, so it was kind of the only thing they had to do. But it just it kind of hit me how popular golf actually is. You know, I know it's never going to be sort of a mainstream sport like football is or kind of cricket or rugby here in the UK. But, you know, once I think once you're in golf, you're in for good. And I think if, if more clubs realized that and welcomed new people in immediately, I think the more people would actually stay. I, th- I think people forget, a lot of golf clubs don't realize that, you know, it's a lot of people get hooked very quickly if you give them the right environment. So actually creating that right environment is possibly the most important thing, you know. So there's a lot of golf clubs in the UK that have still had this whole two or three week process to become a new member, even during this whole lockdown. Oh, and you, you just think like, Really? You know, nominations just, just and hand out memberships yep. at this stage. You know, if people are interested, then just get them along and then work on the details afterwards. The Henry Ford model. I'll give you the car if you just promise to buy the parts from me. <laughs> that's that's where the money is. Exactly. It's in the future. It's not in the mm. the uh It's almost like you're the initial proposing that golf's sort of an addictive game. <laughs> that you you get you get hooked on it. Full circle. That's, yeah. Here's something interesting that I, I don't know whether you saw this tweet, Adrian, but you're like, and I've actually written my column for Golf Australia this week. Oh, I didn't give credit, but based off this tweet, I can't remember who wrote it, but it was, it was a course superintendent in America who said, let's hope that people have taken note that golf's sort of been really popular in this time without all of the add-ons and the bloat yeah. of the restaurants and the clubhouses and all the other nonsense. The game itself is the real appeal. We lose sight of that sometimes, don't we, Meg? Yeah, definitely. I mean... Well, I'm not sure I personally lose sight of it because all I ever think about is golf. But um, yeah, there's, you know, there's so many gimmicks and there's all these, you know, how do we grow the game and how do we do this and how do we do that? Like the game itself is fine. There's nothing wrong with the game. It's everything that comes with it. It's all the procedures and the policies and, the you know, the, the boards and the rules, you know, just get people to the golf course and they'll love it, in my opinion. All right, the, the UK... Many clubs in the UK do that better than anywhere in the world where it's just simply about turning up and playing. And it's a different structure, isn't it, in a lot of places. Yeah. You might have multiple different golf clubs playing out of the single course as a facility as opposed to what we have here in that's Australia right. where clubs become a very expensive. And, and that's sport. partly because UK clubs struggle a lot financially. <laughs> you know, it's, an, it's not necessarily a successful model over there. A lot of UK clubs close every week. There's clubs closing. But um, at the same time, struggling financially means – they focus on what's left over, which is just the the, the playing field and actually yeah. playing the game. Yeah, indeed. So a little, let's hope that uh, the golf grabs that with both hands. Adrian, I think you had a question for Meg. Well, you wanted to Meg, ask her. you know, you're 
you're quite high profile now. You're a marquee player on the LE tour, LET tour, and uh, you're. Um, that's a. That's a. That uh, what's the word I'm looking too for? Too many tours. I said there. Yeah, you yeah. kind of. It's like having an ATM. It's an machine. ATM machine. That's sorry. Right. Or a pin number. So Just stop it. Don't do that. Start again. Despite that distraction, um, you, and you've had a lot of success now. You must be starting to think what are your chances are for the uh, for Solheim Cup selection. Is that something that's occurred to you? Or? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't I wasn't a million miles away no. last year. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got a phone call, which is like a I, – to nice. be fair, I wasn't expecting a phone call. I didn't think I did well enough to ex- to deserve a phone call. But it still shows you that you're, you know, you're there and thereabouts. But I, um, I remember, I think it must have been, what, three years ago now, I was maybe in my first year as a professional and I kind of watched – watched the whole Solheim that year on TV and obviously knew a few of the girls. And it was the first time that I'd really watched it with the sense of that's not just where I want to be, but that's where I feel like I could be, Mm. you know, like something had had shifted a little bit from it being this big far away dream to being like, actually I know how to go about getting there kind of thing. Um, but I think last year was a bit of a wake up call for me because I was, you know, I started the year well and I could have had a chance if I'd played well throughout the summer. And it just felt like a lot of things happened in a very short space of time in terms of not being particularly well, having a bit of an injury and kind of putting all this pressure on myself that I just almost completely forgot how to play like myself as I was at the start of the year. Um, which is why, again, I think this this whole period could be one of the best things that's happened to me for my golf. Um, so it's just trying to kind of hang on to those lessons that you learn, I guess, and go forward from there. Or keep learning them again, as Bobby Jones famously said. <laughs> you just keep yeah, learning exactly. the same lessons over and over every every year. Or two. What, what does the Solheim Cup mean to you, Meg? Did you grow up looking at the Solheim Cup and thinking – that's what I want, that's the drive, that's the place to be. And when you get there, I won't say if, I will say when, because I'm fairly certain that you will, what will you bring to the team? Will you enjoy that environment? Yeah, I'd love that environment. I played I played Curtis Cup before I turned pro, which was like, the, you know, it sounds cliche, but it was one of the biggest highlights of my life, never mind just my career. Just being like obviously golf's golf's a strange sport because you're by yourself so much of the time and even though you've got all your friends on tour you're still trying to beat each other every week Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden you're in a team and the Curtis Cup that I played we just we were all such different people but it just worked we all had our different attributes and I think you know if you have a captain who understands that and who works with that it can be the greatest thing that happens. And obviously you see that I think quite often in sharp contrast in the Ryder Cup with how the Europeans have played over the last Mm. few events in comparison to the Americans. Um, And I think if it's done right, it's incredible. And playing in front of fans when you're on a team is just something completely different. Because you don't have, you know, you don't have some people all kind of split. Obviously, they're split in the sense of America versus Europe. But, you know, if you've got a normal PGA Tour event or a major or whatever it might be, you know, there's no overwhelming majority for one person. It's it's a completely different experience. And I'd love to be part of it at the highest level. That, that common goal, I think, is what's probably unusual in golf. You're right, the... The, the Ryder Cup and the Solheim Cup are interesting. The European teams on paper every time it comes in really have no right to compete on paper, and yet they do. The President's Cup, we're starting to see. I think we saw at Royal Melbourne, Ernie Els instilled something in that team, something like what Europe has, where the collective can be better than the sum of its parts with a couple of standout players. And then if others do their job, it can be a, a much more competitive environment than the maybe the – you know, on paper it might suggest. They're very unique and special events, aren't they? I would be terrified to be a part of a team like that, be at the 
in the cauldron at the centre of it all, but they're fantastic to watch. So in some ways I envy you, but in some ways I don't. The the on paper bit I think is so skewed by the world rank the way the world rankings are done. So it is, yeah. But in fairness, I mean, the world rankings generally get it about right, don't you think? I guess so. Yeah, I reluctantly. What do you agree. reckon, Meg? Generally, get it about right. Well, I mean, like golf courses, golfers can probably put in bands, can't they? You've it's got as, your it's top as good as 10, There's you've got your ten to thirty, you've got your thirty to seventy, and then you've got seventy to hundred, and then people tend to be in about the right place, don't they, Meg? I think so. Yeah, but I suppose it's it because it comes down to the individual. You know, there's a lot of you know every golfer in the top. I don't know, at least a hundred in the world rankings is capable of just as good golf as each other. I think like more or less, you know, you'll have better putters, you'll have better drivers, you'll have whatever, but they're all capable of shooting 60. So it's just about consistency over the year and playing well at the right times and stuff. So I think when you get to an environment like the Ryder Cup or the Solheim Cup, you know, all the world rankings go out the window because you've got people who are capable of just as good golf as each other. So it's just about, I think, creating the right environment for it to come out. And then make it match play. And that really <laughs> changes everything, doesn't it? Now it's kind of personal and you'll see the competitors within there. Are, well, we've seen Poulter do it every time in the Ryder Cup. He lifts to a level that we rarely see from him in a stroke play event and plays golf that is otherworldly in some ways. Pedersen as well. Pedersen's one, another what a, one. What a competitor. Oh, well, Although, yeah, she's gone now. Meg, you can slot, <laughs> in, slot into that position. <laughs> yeah. Now that a you're big, writing her material. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For her. Yeah, interesting uh, interesting sort of stuff. I'm glad to hear you say that, that you know you sort of – and I'm glad you got the phone call too. I think we might have discussed that before. Does, does Katrina, does she have a silent number or do you now have her number in your phone? Can you text her any time? <laughs> I, I now have her number. It's quite, it's quite cool actually because I don't know how she got it but because obviously she never asked me for it or anything like that. So the first time I got a text from her might have been after I – one in Australia that year, which was 2018, 19. The Solheim was 19, so it was after I won then. Yeah. And it was like, hi, Meg, it's Katrina. I just want to say, like, you know, great win or whatever. And I was like, oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> Who's winding me up here? Which one of my friends I is doing my this? phone out the window, yeah. Um, uh, that's fantastic. And then have you seen and spoken to her since? And what did she say when she – uh, I assume that she, what, did she let you know that you weren't going to be selected? Is that what you were saying? Or is it just that one text you had from Yeah. Her? No, I had I had a couple of texts. And I had, I, I thought she handled it really well, actually, because she texted me again a couple of months later, kind of saying, look, you know, you're- Meg, Meg stop bothering me. Enough's enough. <laughs> I'm changing my number. Uh, um, no, but just, just saying, look, you know, just so you know, you're- you've started the year well and you know you're we know who you are effectively so mm. just keep up the good work and and see what happens which i thought was quite a cool thing to do um you know some captains might do it differently and just let everybody kind of do their own thing and and not say anything but i think for somebody like me and especially the girls who play in europe who are maybe a bit further away from the world rankings way of getting in it's nice to know that you're being thought about and that you're being kind of watched in a positive sense. Um, but she, I, I played with her a couple of times as well after that because she came over to Europe to play in a few events to keep an eye on some players. And that was obviously, that was quite difficult or it was uh, quite eye-opening, I suppose. <laughs> Different pressure. Um, she did a fabulously understated job as captain, didn't you think? She yeah. was almost never in the limelight at any point, and yet she guided that team, fantastic team, to just such a memorable victory. It was an extraordinary job on her part, I thought. Yeah, me too. I, I love that style of mm. kind of like quiet, determinate. You know, that's how she won her major as well, kind of just go under the radar Get but completely it. believe in yourself as well. Australian Open champion as well. Mm. Won the Australian Open, I think, down here. Did she not? Oh, hang on a minute. I'm thinking of Barry Mackay. 
Scottish um, Parliament in the Australian. I'll have to fact check you on that. Yeah, I'll have to do yeah. some fact checking. If it's wrong, I'll just take it out. So it's like it never happened. The joy of, uh, of being the editor. Wish the I podcast. could do that in golf. It'd be great, <laughs> wouldn't it? it if <laughs> you could do that in golf. But if you could do it, then everybody else could do it. So, you know, then it kind of becomes irrelevant. Meg, it's always fantastic to talk to you. It's been fantastic again. We better let you get to bed. What's the uh, schedule for the Rose Series from here on in? Where can we follow it? And if you do happen to get across the line with the Order of Merit, what do you get? You get £20,000 if you win the Order of Merit, which nice. is – that kind of made everybody sit up and take notice, yeah. I think, on the uh, on the ladies' side. We're like, okay, we're, this this is kind of career-changing for, yeah. for some of the girls. Um, so, yeah, the next one is at the Buckinghamshire, which is, funnily enough, where I played with Katrina Matthew in the US Open qualifier um, last year. And it's quite – I will go in a sec, but it's quite funny because I've obviously had – I've had a reputation as a good putter and she'd she's mentioned that before. And I played with her for the first time at the Bucks, hit the ball better than I ever have and had the worst putting round of my professional career. Like stats wise, they prove it. And I was just like, Oh my God, she's going to, she must think she's got the wrong person or something. <laughs> and thankfully I played with her again a few weeks later and putted well, but um, anyway, so yeah, we've got, we've got a few more events um, lined up and I think there'll be some some more TV coverage of it as well or the Rose Lady series has got, got their own handle on Twitter now as well so there'll be updates and things like that on there. Bit of video I've been trying to find video of it and I know Sky Sports sent a team out but just for interviews and a few highlights I think they're not actually... I think um, I think a few of the events as we move forward I think they might have some some better coverage and highlights, great. fingers crossed. That'd be yeah. really good. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, well, good luck with that. And if you do happen to win the Order of Merit, your shout for coffee when you get down here, hopefully <laughs> uh, early in the new year. We know you look forward to coming down and we always look forward to having the LET down here. It's a terrific series of events. And if people haven't made the effort to go out and watch any of them, uh, they are absolutely uh, worth it. It is uh, it is fantastic to get up close to the players. Meg, great to catch up with you. Always great to catch up with you. Thanks for taking some time, and we look forward to watching how things unfold for you with the Rose Series and everything else for the rest of 2020. Thanks very much, guys. Always enjoy talking to you. I always enjoy talking to you too, Logue. I sometimes enjoy talking mm-hmm. to you, and today has been one of those days, apart from that one bad idea and the – what is that called when you have L.E.T. tour? What's that? There's a name for that. Yep. I don't, yeah, I don't think you really earned the right to criticise me if you can't think of what the name of that thing is. So. I'll look it up on the thesaurus and I'll insert it later. But apart from those two little missteps, it's been a joy to talk to you today too. So thank you for uh, for coming along to the studio. Pleasure. Thanks very much, Rod. Thanks, Meg. Thanks, Meg. Episode 38, Done and Dusted, the Good Good Golf Podcast. We'll be back again next week with episode 39, which won't be the book club, but uh, it will be getting recorded around that time. So uh, we'll have a surprise in store for next week's show. That's it for the Good Good Golf Podcast.